Hey, Pitchfork Economics listeners, on an upcoming episode, we'll be talking about this really core neoliberal economic idea called marginal productivity. It's the neoclassical economic idea that the market, because it's perfectly efficient, always pays you exactly what you're worth. So we want to hear from you, whether you're a minimum wage worker or an executive or anything in between. Do you think you're paid exactly what you're worth? Tell us what you do and whether you get paid what you're worth, and we'll try to play it on the show. And here's the number, 731-388-9334. Thanks. Job creation in this country uh, has not been equal when you look at geography, and it has not been equal when you look at race, and it's not been equal when you look at uh, economic class. You might start thinking about this problem like this quiet, hidden epidemic that people who live with it bear all of these social costs. Politics is largely the art of the possible. If we can extend economic opportunity to people left out, then we will appeal to the better angels of this country. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a conversation about how capitalism actually works. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Paul Constant, and I'm a writer at Civic Ventures. In the last episode, we talked about universal basic income, and today we are going to talk about its uh, close cousin, (laughs) universal basic jobs. Yeah. So a job guarantee is similar, but different than an income guarantee. And uh, there's a ton of conversation in progressive policy, wonky progressive policy circles around uh, the notion of a job guarantee. And it comes in all sorts of flavors in the same way that UBI, universal basic income, comes in all sorts of sizes and flavors. Um, but, you know, we're, we're going to explore a jobs guarantee in this episode, and I'm really excited to do it because uh, just to give away a little bit, I, I think it's um, uh, honestly a more plausible idea than universal basic income. Paul, tell, tell us just in broad strokes what universal basic jobs, what it is. The idea is that rather than just giving people unemployment checks, although some plans do include unemployment as well, rather than just giving people unemployment checks, the government would give them a job, yeah. uh, preferably in a, in a field that they had some sort of expertise in. You saw this a lot in the New Deal with things like building dams yeah. or even making murals, public arts, right. uh, and things like that. So it's, it's a way to keep people productive yeah. uh, in exchange for money, performing valuable services that need doing in a way that, that sort of keeps the economy rolling, particularly in, in times of recession or, or depression. Yeah, I think a lot of that makes sense because there is an infinite amount in our country that needs doing, right. uh, ch- infinite amounts of child care needs, uh, teaching needs, elder care needs, mm-hmm. heck, trail building needs, right. <laughs> firefighting needs. I mean, there's just so much infrastructure building. I mean, there's just so much that needs doing. And... So the idea that the federal government will somehow backstop that with a big jobs program, particularly in recessionary times, is, the, I guess, the core of the idea. And it's, uh, it's kind of important to note that uh, 
some progressive Democrats, including people who are running for president, like uh, Senator Sanders and Senator Warren and Senator Booker, have talked about a, uh, a guaranteed jobs, but they also are very clear that they have to be jobs with with high pay, uh, yeah, good benefits, things like that. This is not like a you know seven twenty five an hour right minimum wage. Yeah, job. and and you know, and the policy, you know, that the, there's a bunch of policy objectives with respect to this idea. Uh, one of them is to eliminate, essentially to end involuntary unemployment, right. uh, to make sure that everyone who wants a job can have one and not just a crappy job, but uh, actually a, a, a decent job that pays well. But the other, the other policy objective is to put pressure on the private sector to keep, keep wages and standards high because... Right. You, you know, the the government jobs, obviously, you know, the point of them is to be good jobs. So anyway, that's an important uh, element of it. Yeah. So the uh, UBI and guaranteed jobs aren't necessarily separate ideas, although we have broken them up into two distinct episodes. Generally, the two ideas are sort of pitted against each other in the in the discussion amongst wonks. And I know that uh, people who favor the UBI say that that guaranteed jobs would be inefficient and that uh, UBI would offer more freedom and not trap people in a, in a specific job or sort of keep them in, in government work when they could be in the private sector. Uh, to be clear, there's a bunch of people in our economy uh, who, who cannot, who actually cannot work more disabled in one way, in one way, shape, or form, and we're going to need to find ways to support them. But certainly, we should have a system that enables people who want to work uh, to work, even in harder times. If you want to get the get an understanding of guaranteed jobs, there's one person you call, and that's uh, Pavlina Cherneva. Professor Cherneva is the associate professor and chair of the Department of Economics at Bard College uh, and the research associate at the Levy Economics Institute. She's also the senior research scholar at the Center for Full Employment and Price Stability. Hi, Paul. Hi. Can you hear me? I sound I sound all right. Yes. Yes, I can. How about you? Uh, yeah, you sound perfect. Thank you. I guess uh, first, if I could ask you to just do the basics and uh, explain what exactly is a job guarantee for people who might not know. Yeah, you can think of it as unemployment insurance to be contrasted with unemployment insurance. But uh, the modern versions uh, basically are rethinking those policies for the modern day. So you can think of it as a new deal for the modern era. You can think of it as an employment safety net where if somebody has lost their work and they're looking, uh, there is always an option for them, guaranteed. So that's really what the guarantee means in the title, that it's, it's a promise that uh, there will be a federal program that will provide these opportunities on demand. I was wondering if, if maybe you could talk about some of the most frequent misunderstandings of, of universal jobs that you have to debunk. What do people think it is that it isn't, if that's clear? Yes. No, that's a good question. A lot of times people think that because it's a guarantee, you could just show up and the government just, you know, provides you a paycheck because the job is guaranteed. That's not true. It's a job like any other. It, you know, you show up for work, you do the work, you get paid. You don't show up, you don't get paid. 
Um, so that's one misconception. It's really a job like any other. We talk about it primarily as being a job in the public service sector, and we can explain why that's preferable. But it's not a handout. So that's number one. The other thing that it's not, uh, it's not work fair. There are concerns sometimes that what we're proposing is that taking away people's unemployment insurance or other benefits unless they show up for work uh, at this at this program. And so there are, uh, you know, there are work fair programs like this out out there, but the job guarantee is not it. And there's another big misunderstanding I think is that people who are sympathetic tend to associate this program with just infrastructure. So they're saying, oh, we're going to build bridges and provide jobs this way. But you have to really think quite a bit about whether it is possible to provide such a guarantee to everyone just by doing infrastructure investment. Um, it, we need it. We definitely need it. But there are occasions when the economy really goes into you know, a sharp downturn, a mass layoff. And it might not be easy to crank up infrastructure investment on short notice. And a lot of jobs that are needed actually in the service sector and the service area. So uh, the, the job guarantee is really a, a, a tapestry of different kinds of employment opportunities in public service that are not limited to the infrastructure uh, projects. Uh, it will include them. And, and the final thing is not temporary. So a lot of times people will say, well, you know, we could do public works in recessions. Uh, that makes sense. Uh, there's a big downturn, lots of unemployed people. But the reality is that there are unemployment, you know, unemployed people even in the best of times. They still need uh, work. And they tend to be quite invisible because the economy is doing quite well. But, um, you know, there, are, there are lots of problems associated even with smaller levels of unemployment. So it's not a temporary program. It's really part of the landscape of public policies that deal with unemployment and poverty. Okay. So can you, the uh, socioeconomic costs of unemployment, you know, we often hear when we go to raise the minimum wage, we hear about the unintended consequences of, uh, of, of raising the wage to $15 an hour. What are some of the unintended consequences of keeping uh, some portion of the population consistently unemployed? Yes, there is really a lot of work that comes from psychology and the cognitive sciences and public health that documents these very carefully. Unfortunately, economists don't make use of this research uh, and public policy. So unemployment is related to virtually any and every socioeconomic problem out there. Um, just, just to enumerate some of them. For example, even a short spell of unemployment has an impact on mortality. It increases mortality rates. And some of these impacts uh, can be long-term impacts. People who lose their jobs, obviously there are scarring effects, like they lose their incomes. Um, you know, they may have more trouble getting back into the labor market than people who already have jobs. But um, health Mental, physical health problems are highly correlated with unemployment. Suicide rates, there's a, there's a recent study that looks at 69 countries. Turns out suicide rates are much higher uh, uh, in terms of what was previously known, the relationship between jobs and suicide rates. There are, so, you know, there are these psychological, there's these physical mental health problems, but they are not just problems for people who've lost their jobs. It, it turns out that their families, I mean, these are obvious things, but their families suffer 
from similar cognitive effects and their children suffer. So the the obvious things like malnutrition, like growth stunting, um, like underperformance in schools, also highly correlated to having an unemployed parent. And then children don't do so well in the labor market. So losing your social network, your connections. Um, and if you just add up all of these, you see, you might start thinking about this problem, like this quiet, hidden epidemic that is just invisible, but it people who live with it uh, bear all of these social costs. And then, of course, our communities, you know, um, take some of the impact uh, in terms of urban blight, crime, economic crimes that may be related to joblessness or, or poverty, um, uh, or inability to earn a, a above poverty income. Okay. And so, so, of course, we measure employment in this country by the unemployment numbers. Do you think that we should be striving for full employment? Like, should we be measuring uh, uh, our jobs by how close we are or far away we are from full employment? Well, look, <laughs> I, I think that what we should be aiming for is a good society, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. the ultimate goal. It's not a particular number. Now, if you expand your definitions, there's really good research uh, that uh, looks at proper calculations. You're probably looking at about double the numbers. Maybe 12 million people uh, would be ready to take a living wage job if it were available. You know, so the goal is not to hit a particular number. You know, the way I see this problem is I look at it from the point of view of the person. Is there a good reason not to design a policy to provide a job opportunity for somebody who's really trying hard to find one? and to find a good job opportunity. And to me, there is no good economic, social, moral reason not to do it when we actually have the means, the means to do it. So we're not looking for a society where everybody's a busy bee working. You know, there are good reasons why some people should go to school and stay at home and whatever they have chosen to do, they can do it with sort of a complex set of good social policies. But there are a lot of people for whom having a decent job is important and they shouldn't be just considered naturally unemployed and neglected because we kind of have accepted unemployment as something unavoidable something natural uh earlier i was glad when you pointed out that they were not just infrastructure jobs uh because i mean obviously we do need a massive infrastructure overhaul in this country but like for myself um i am terrible with my hands like I can't even nail you know hammer a nail into a board um, without like breaking the board or bending the nail or something like that so uh, what kind of jobs uh, would a would a job guarantee provide what we want to do is take care of people take care of our communities and take care of the environment so we've got a lot of care needs from from after-school activities for kids, from elder care, from Meals on Wheels, from attending to veterans who have returned home. Uh, there is a lot of care work. There are lots of gaps in, in that sphere. We also need to improve our communities. I mean, we uh, would strive not just to clean them up and do all the monitoring for lead pipes and you know fix the municipal water system, but also fix about public spaces, provide parks, provide gating rings, and uh, all of that. And the environment, of course, is a big one. I mean, just thinking about the environmental transformation that we need to undertake uh, to deal with climate change, I think there's no shortage of work. We will probably run out of people rather than tasks to do. And I think this is the reason why the job guarantee has been 
called sort of the, the single most crucial component of the job guarantee agenda. Um, we are we are coming up on the end of our time, but uh, I would like to ask you what it was that uh, brought you to this line of work. I mean, I, I first um, started working on the job guarantee because I was really attracted to the macro benefits of this policy. What today we have is we basically use unemployment to stabilize the economy, and you hear, uh, you know, when the Fed makes statements that we need to figure out. What is the natural level of unemployment? Is it too low? Is it too high? Is it just right? And so to me, that didn't make sense, that we should be using unemployment to stabilize the economy when you could just use employment. So the job guarantee is essentially this policy that expands in recessions and contracts in expansions. And so we could do it better. And there are so many benefits, macro benefits. You know, you don't have this human yo-yo effect that we see in the unemployment rate, which is very volatile in the U.S. It oscillates so much. So that was the first thing that attracted me to this policy. But then the more I studied, the more I looked at actual policies that were implemented around this model, um, the benefits. Uh, it was the human face of, of this program that that, uh, uh, that became very, very powerful and sort of giving me motivation to carry on mm-hmm. when you when you see how it actually plays out in the real world and has positive benefits yeah, exactly yeah. how how people respond the material impact that it has on their lives on their children it is quite profound and so i have i have looked for many arguments that would say well you know what it's not a good idea to guarantee or provide an employment opportunity for a person who needs it. And I have not yet found a single argument that uh, is powerful enough to say we shouldn't go forward with this, with this policy. Wow. Well, that's, that's great. Uh, I'm so glad you're, you're doing this work. Um, Thank you for making the time. Uh, We really appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. I enjoy your, your podcast very much. And uh, I'm glad to be on. Great. Well, have a good day. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. It may seem like the idea of guaranteed jobs came out of nowhere, but actually, guaranteed jobs and pitchforks are linked throughout history. I'm Annie Fadley, professional policy nerd at Civic Ventures, and it's time for a little history. Let's go back to the Industrial Revolution in Europe. Before then, almost everyone was a farmer, but with factories came jobs that were more like we know them today, with bosses and wages and schedules. At first, jobs were easy to get because so many laborers were needed, but as more and more people moved to urban areas, the concept of unemployment existed for the first time in human history. In France, around 1846, unemployment discontent was intensified by a food shortage. About a third of Paris was on social welfare, and the government tried to stop people from talking about it, which led to the Revolution of 1848, the overthrow of the king, and the establishment of the French Second Republic. A provisional government was set up, and it was during this time that the idea of a guaranteed job was popularized. A socialist and historian called Louis Blanc is credited with inventing the concept of the right to work, and when he became a member of the provisional government after the revolution, he took his chance to make it happen. He proposed federally funded national workshops where workmen in each trade could be reliably employed. It was approved, but Louis Blanc's arch enemy was put in charge of the workshops and he sabotaged them. When it was announced that the super popular workshops were closing, 
Thousands of people rebelled in the June Days uprising. More than 10,000 people were killed or injured by the National Guard, and Louis Blanc was exiled. That uprising was the end of the Revolution of 1848 and snuffed out the promise of guaranteed jobs. But fast forward to the 1930s in the United States, the Great Depression. I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming around. Just a wandering worker, I go from The conventional to economic thinking at that time considered unemployment to be only a temporary state of being. Most people thought that the government should stay out of the market until it sorted itself out. But by 1933, unemployment had reached 25%, and President Franklin Roosevelt knew that he had to do something. I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. And at the very heart of it was direct job creation. One of the New Deal's many job guarantee programs was the Civilian Conservation Corps, a voluntary public work relief program that employed three million men with jobs in forestry, soil erosion prevention, and flood control from 1933 to 1942. Programs just like that made the U.S. government the largest employer in the country for a decade, but they eventually fell victim to budget cuts. Since then, there have been a lot of efforts to more fully employ Americans, especially during wartime. And in 1978, President Carter signed the Humphrey Hawkins Full Employment Act, which, among other things, allows the government to create a reservoir of public employment if unemployment rises above 3%. And even though it obviously has, guaranteed job programs haven't been used to meet this need. Internationally, there's a few job programs here and there in Argentina, in India, and in South Africa. But here's the thing to take away from all of this. Job guarantees have been successful in the past, and they can be used again to encourage full participation in our economy. But typically these programs have only appeared during times of extreme unrest, and maybe that's why this idea is gaining traction again today. That's your quick history, now back to the show. Our second uh, guest is uh, U.S. Representative Ro Khanna from California's 17th Congressional District. Uh, that is, by the way, Silicon Valley. Um, and he has this really interesting job opportunity bill uh, that we're going to get to talk to him about. This is Ro. Hey, Ro. Nick Hanauer. Sorry, Nick. It's just been a crazy day. Yeah, no. All these votes on the NDAA. Yeah, no problem. Uh, are, are you making progress? <laughs> we did. I had a big amendment pass uh, bipartisan on um, uh, stopping any funding for any offensive war in Iran. And Actually, 27 Republicans voted for it, so uh, it was about 260 votes. So I, I'm hopeful. Let's see what happens in the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, thank you for doing uh, the thankless, awful work that uh, you're doing. So <laughs> Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you uh, for your uh, incredible leadership. Your proposal is very intriguing and, uh, you know, we think uh, offers a lot. Well, I appreciate it. It's a proposal that we worked with uh, a number of economists on, and the idea is that <clears throat> job creation in this country uh, has not been equal when you look at geography, and it has not been equal when you look at race, and it's not been equal when you look at uh, economic class. And even Larry Summers uh, recently wrote a big paper saying that uh, while <clears throat> a, f a free market economy uh, without uh, government interference has worked for uh, many Americans. It actually has failed uh, to create jobs in certain communities, whether that's rural America or communities of color, and that there is a role for uh, active government intervention uh, to help people uh, get jobs and uh, beyond the economic ladder towards good-paying jobs uh, in these communities. 
Uh, and that's particularly the case as we go through a technology revolution, which I know, Nick, you've written a lot about, yeah. uh, that is changing the nature of work, that is uh, changing the nature of the ability to unionize. Uh, there's an acute need to think about how we're going to uh, create jobs. And so our proposal says, you know, one, we want to be creating jobs both in the private sector and the public sector. Uh, FDR's famous speech in when he talked about the right to work was not just a, the right to work for government. He actually talked about the right to work uh, in mining, in farming, in private industry, and that the role the federal government can play is to uh, help subsidize for up to 18 months a job uh, and to also at the same time subsidize uh, a credential uh, in that uh, area uh, so that people can uh, both work and get a skill, and you have generous wraparound services because we know that one barrier to employment is uh, folks need to to have the ability to write a resume, and they need to be have housing, and they need to be uh, able to get a nutritious meal, and they have to be integrated in society. So for uh, 18 months, we would subsidize an individual to work in either the public sector or private sector to get the wraparound services and to get a credential with the idea that it is a transition to help them uh, then be employable in uh, the job market. And uh, the bill, you know, originally some of the, the, the left were unhappy that it wasn't a full jobs bill and it yeah. didn't uh, just give a job to everyone, but actually we're the only one right now who has an actual bill. I mean, because <laughs> legit, you know, so by default, it's the most progressive bill out there. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of progressives consider this bill to be a little moderate. Was that in the plan, or do you do you disagree with that with that assessment? I agree with their critique, their vision uh, in some of the, the the left, and I and some issues were aligned. But some of them want just the federal government should hire everyone, and you should have a job guarantee uh, for for life, basically. And I I don't think that's healthy. One, most people in this country still want to work in the private sector. And uh, Arlie Hochschild has a brilliant book, Strangers in Your Own Land where she goes to communities that Trump carried. And she says, well, why, why did the Democratic message not resonate? And they said, well, we don't want government jobs. We uh, want uh, jobs in uh, steel or manufacturing or in the private sector. Now, I'm, th- this is coming from someone who's dedicated his life to public service. I think government service is wonderful. I think people who work in the public sector, it's terrific. But I also believe that we have to give people the opportunity to work in the private sector. And the biggest complaint that the, the left had with the bill was that this would subsidize uh, private sector jobs as well as government jobs. But there were a lot of safeguards on it. So it's not like Walmart could use these subsidies to just uh, hire mm-hmm. people at low uh, level wages. I mean, it maximizes the amount of people you can use in a program to 20. Uh, so it's really geared towards small businesses or right. companies to use it for a small number of jobs. Uh, and again, it goes back to FDR's vision where he saw both the private sector and public sector is important. And this is why, you know, I call myself a progressive capitalist, uh, the term Joseph Stiglitz coined. I believe in free enterprise. I believe in innovation and markets, but I believe they should be working for working Americans who have had huge productivity increases and aren't uh, getting the benefits of the economy. Uh, and that we need government intervention to give everyone a ladder to these jobs. Uh, and that, I guess, is the debate on with the, the the further left is do you still believe in the private sector and, and, and free enterprise? And I do. Yeah, for sure. So um, uh, can, can you explain to our listeners a little bit more about precisely what the bill will do? Sure. The bill will subsidize for up to 18 months 
an individual's entire salary uh, in getting a job. So if you're uh, working in uh, a place, let's say in Chicago, and uh, you have been unemployed uh, for a period of uh, six months and you haven't been able to get a job, uh, you can go and, and, and get qualify for a subsidy to get employment for up to 18 months. And the, you also would get a subsidy uh, that would help you with uh, all of the social services you may need to be able to be succeed at the type of job yeah. uh, that you would be hired into. Uh, and finally, the bill has a stipend for you to simultaneously, after you, you get some hours in in your job, to get a credential uh, in whatever you may want if it was, it's in a high-growth area so that you become employable. And uh, Georgetown did a study on this. You can, they really did a whole academic study saying that this would uh, significantly create uh, almost 2 million jobs around the country. The cost is not ex- astronomical. I mean, it's in the, the tens of billions, but we're not talking about something that's going to break the budget. Uh, of course, it can continually be expanded uh, as, as we prove success. Uh, and that it would significantly lower poverty. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, what do you think the uh, the fairest criticism of the bill is? Oh, there could be a few fair criticisms. One is, is this subsidy going to be enough? Uh, right. I mean, people who are uh, unemployed in these areas, uh, there are so many social issues that you have to address, whether it's housing, whether it's uh, dealing with drug addiction or mental health issues, whether it's dealing with... Uh, nutritional issues, psychological issues, uh, are, is the subsidy really getting to uh, what's going to be needed? Yeah. Uh, is 18 months enough? Yeah. Is that enough of a time period? Uh, are you asking people too much to do a job and also get a credential? And how do you how do you do that? Uh, and, you know, is this scale big enough? I mean, it's, it's not a full federal jobs guarantee. Right. And uh, there are people, uh, you know, I know, Nick, you've been such a leader on wages and, and getting mm-hmm. wages up. The folks who argue for a full federal jobs guarantee with the federal government say that we need the public sector jobs to be paying 15 17 $20 an hour yeah. to put pressure on the yeah. private sector yeah. to, to compete. And this obviously doesn't have that aspect in, in, in as much of a, a sense. And so you, you would need other policies on minimum wage right. or, uh, or things you've talked about uh, to increase private sector wages, but you wouldn't have that uh, impact of the public sector sort of being competitive. Right. One of the things that, that researchers seem to be finding now is that the idea of just uh, giving out of work workers training is not as successful as, as it could be, uh, that it doesn't do the job that that it should do, that it's always the thing that politicians uh, suggest when the economy goes south is, or when a factory closes, is we'll just retrain, retrain the workers. But that doesn't pan out in reality the way that it does uh, in a speech. And something I, I find interesting about this is that it it seems to offer a little bit of latitude for people to do on-the-job training and in kind of an apprenticeship. Is it is it designed for that kind of a thing, to help people yeah. break into new industries? It is, exactly. I mean, the difference is this is actually going to give you a job. So it's not right. just saying have training that leads to nowhere. Yeah. It's saying you're going to be employed for uh, up to 18 months. You're going to get on-the-job credential training. You're going to get a stipend to do additional courses if you, if you need to. 
Uh, and I think in general, in recessions, I mean, you look at Germany when we went through the Great Recession, and uh, they didn't have nearly the unemployment we did because they have policies that actually yeah. uh, subsidize companies to keep people employed, and they basically pay the salaries in downturns or, or have huge incentives for companies uh, to hire folks. And I think uh, uh, in, in some sense this bill is modeled out of, uh, around ideas like that that have worked in other in other countries and and i agree with you completely uh, i think the job training though important has gotten such a bad name because what happened is we were subsidizing these jobs training programs partly i think they were done often without any collaboration with the private sector so i was down in paintsville kentucky with hal rogers's district big republican and the community college is getting uh, millions of dollars in jobs training and they were literally I went to the one of the classes and they were teaching kids how to replace hard drives and Hal Rogers said look this is crazy we ought to be partnering with the private sector in some places and looking at app development or other things and then uh, they came up with a program where people were coal miners kids were going to be guaranteed a forty thousand dollar job in uh, in app development and we're going to be paid four hundred dollars a week for training and the program was very successful. So I think job training, it's yes, we need new credentials, but pre a prerequisite to that has to be a paid job and paying people to get trained. The training challenge is a hard challenge because in a technological society that changes very quickly, by the time you have designed the training program, the industry has changed so much. I mean, I'm sure replacing the hard drive seemed like a great idea when somebody thought up it, thought it up. Uh, a number years of years ago, ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. it, it you know stuff changes so fast that it's very hard to train people for specific skills that will last longer than you know uh, one technology cycle, uh, and and that and that it's just a hard problem. I mean, there's no there's no no way around it. It, it really is. Yeah. You know, one thing that's pretty promising we'll we'll have to see, but there's a. A company in my district, PeopleShore, is a nonprofit type uh, approach. Although they may be a for-profit company, but they did something in uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, one of the poorest places in uh, in, in America, uh, with African American women, many single mothers, uh, and they had them credentialed on robotics process automation, which is basically you know writing the some of the simple coding language uh, that deals with. Uh, chats online and the fact that when you order from DoorDash, you're now often not talking to a person, but are talking to a, a bot. And it, it turns out that's very simple to teach. And they were able to create 25 jobs paying, not great, uh, but starting at $15 an hour, going up to $20 an hour. They called it the Emmett Till, Till Center because it's in the place where the famous you know, case of Emmett Till who was lynched to death in 1954 that led to the civil rights movement. And it's had this profound impact on the community in a very, very uh, positive way. And the view is that, look, robotics process automation, maybe it's not a tenure job, but for the next five years, we're going to give tons of jobs in that. And they can all go offshore. We can do some things like this that are constructive uh, in our communities. So yeah. I don't think they're perfect solutions, and I think technology continues to change, but I think there are many better solutions than the status quo, and we aren't being imaginative enough of what we can do. Yeah. How has uh, the Job Opportunities for All Act been received in Congress? I guess, where in the uh, Schoolhouse Rock song are we about the bill becoming a law? <laughs> We're far from it, honestly. I mean, like, let's say Iran, which we just got into a law with 27 Republicans, or it got, got through the House. You know, I mean, uh, that's at stage eight. Uh, let's say we're, we're at stage one or two. And the reason for that is 
we have a, a lot more work to do first within our own uh, Democratic colleagues uh, to say mm-hmm. that this is uh, needed, right? People say, well, we're at 3.8% or whatever, 3.6% unemployment. And I say, yeah, but people don't have stable, good-paying jobs that are pathways to a career. And you still have a lot of geographic disparity in that. Yeah. So I think people like you and your writing uh, in your advocacy can make a big difference. And then we need some of our presidential candidates to speak about it. I mean, one of the things that has been shocking to me, and I don't know if you feel about that, is the lack of conversation in the first debate about jobs, about good jobs, about economic issues. I, I feel like, you know, we can't just cede that to, to Donald Trump. Right. Uh, and I think that his argument that the economy is doing well is, 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 is sufficient. So we need our presidential candidates talking about it. Uh, we need more conversation about it. We need more grassroots mobilization around it. Yeah, uh, no, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, so what's next? The good news is we had a very positive report by Georgetown, by some of the leading think tanks that we're going to circulate to colleagues to make sure that uh, we're getting as many co-sponsors on this bill. You know, I, I don't want to have a monopoly on having the only bill out there. I, yeah. I welcome, yeah. actually, just out of intellectual dissent and debate to have other members of Congress and senators introduce bills. I mean, we've got 20 health care bills in this Congress. We've got uh, numerous bills on minimum wage, on earned income tax credit. I'd love to have two, three other good bills. I mean, people, right. I think it was a, a, a fad in a moment where people all talked about jobs guarantees. And then, you know, some people legitimately had criticisms with mine, but then we actually did the work to get a final bill out. Right. And I think we need more of those bills. We need to build, then hopefully get more co-sponsors. And the magic number is usually 100. When you get to about 100 co-sponsors, then the leadership starts to take it seriously and you can move. And then we need a, a Democratic president. Although I think uh, on a more modest bill, probably even more modest than mine, you, you could arguably even get some Republican support. Right. A question we ask everybody uh, on this show, uh, why do you do this work? Well, for two reasons. I uh, am the son of immigrants. And I, uh, my parents came from India. My uh, father was a chemical engineer. My mom was a substitute school teacher. I went to public school, uh, took out loans to get to go to some of the great universities. And I now represent arguably one of the most economically successful places in the world. Uh, I believe it's an extraordinary country. I believe there's it's a kind country, a decent country. I grew up in a place that was 99% white. I was one of the only Indian kids going to school in a class of 800. And so I, I fundamentally believe in the decency of this country. But I, I think that the country is being ripped apart by people who aren't talking about the real issues, which is that we're going through a technology revolution and there have been people left behind. And I fundamentally have a hope that if we can extend economic opportunity to people left out, then we will appeal to the better angels of this country again and, and the type of country uh, that I grew up in, which was very uh, inclusive and, and wanted people to, to achieve their dreams. And then on a very personal level, my grandfather spent four years in jail with Gandhi in the 1940s. Really? Uh, in India's independence. And no so kidding. I, uh, you know, I've been very, very passionate about human rights from a very young age. So he, what did your grandfather do? He was in India's actually first parliament, but he was, uh, for 15 years, he was involved in India's freedom movement. And he was in jail from 1941 to 1945, the Quit India movement, uh, with uh, uh, part of Gandhi's uh, independence movement. He worked with Lala Lajpat Rai, who was one of the leaders of the Indian independence movement. And, uh, uh, you know, I have great admiration for him. 
That's oh. cool. <laughs> I mean, not that he went to jail, but you know, like <laughs> this link to yeah, history is pretty yeah. amazing. That is, that yeah. Is... My life, I, I say to people, I he's on my Wikipedia page, and he's got a page of his, and I say, you know, uh, what he did is uh, such an extraordinary thing. The risks he took that. Uh, anytime I have a hard vote or something yeah. here, I think it pales in comparison to, to what he did. And not, pales in comparison to a lot of my colleagues, you know, whatever you think of Congress. I mean, you have people like John Lewis and yeah. was beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and others. I mean, it's a, I'm always mindful of what the previous generations have done to, to get us to this point. Yeah. Well, uh, Ro, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank this you. has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, that that last little bit of history was really pretty cool. Uh, anyway, well, best of luck on all this stuff, yeah. and uh, we will be definitely rooting for this. It's a really cool idea. And uh, I appreciate it, Nick, and I yeah. really appreciate all your advocacy, and I know you've come to the Hill often, and yeah. you're writing, and to, to have someone like you who has the credibility with Americans, given your own story and economic yeah. success talking about equity and talking about uh, getting people a fair shot i mean you're having a profound impact and i really appreciate all you're doing well that's very kind of you okay man we'll t- uh, talk soon hope you hope to see you soon take, take care. care bye So we've done two episodes about two very different theories of how to operate the economy, and they both have their their positives and their negatives. Nick, where do you, where do you come down? Which one do you prefer if if you had to choose one? Yeah, well, I I have never been and continue to not be a huge fan of UBI, Universal Basic Income. You know, but I am a big fan of you know, the idea of a universal basic job because for some hundreds of billions of dollars. Mm-hmm which sounds like a, not a lot, but really isn't in the context of the right. full, full budget, uh, you, could make a, you could take a huge dent, make a huge dent, rather, in unemployment and voluntary unemployment and make people productive and generate a lot of value in the economy and simultaneously train people for new stuff that they hadn't done before and all sorts of benefits like that. And I think, I think that the universal basic job, if looked, looked at in the right way, actually would pay for itself. It would literally pay for itself. And so I, I find that idea to be much more promising. Uh, it just seems like a much more efficient and effective way to run the economy. Uh, a, a thing which is more consonant with, I think, what people are like and what they need and uh, more directly fulfills the needs of the country, too, because, as I said before, there's a we got a lot of stuff to do. You know, like there's a lot of stuff that needs doing. And if people um, are not employed in the private sector, then, by, you know, by golly, let's let's employ them in the public sector to to get it done. There's nothing about that that won't make our country stronger and better off. Yeah, I'm a, I'm definitely more of a proponent of guaranteed jobs than of a UBI because partly, uh, as you mentioned, I think the training is really important. And yeah. I think that the guaranteed jobs are a great way to train people for a new line of work because yeah. at least for me, I learn by doing things. Yes. Uh, and also, I do believe, I know that a lot of people sort of roll their eyes when uh, politicians talk about the dignity of work and things like that. But, you know, I, I speak to a lot of uh, people who want to be writers, you know, be the journalism students or, or aspiring novelists or whatever. And, and I always say that nothing is more inspiring than a deadline. And, yeah. you know, and, and, <laughs> and, you know, you can you can noodle on a on a novel for years yeah. and years. But when you finally get that, we need this done by this date. That's 
that's the muse. That's the inspiration. Yeah. Right. And I think that applies to, to life and to learning and to work. Yeah. You know, there's something very important about keeping folks sort of in the flow of things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like you don't want people at home. Right. You want them out and about. And the truth is that, you know, most people get jobs and get experience and get advanced in their life through a network of relationships, yeah. not through the newspaper right. ads or whatever, right? And so the thing about a jobs guarantee is it keeps you plugged into the world in a way that allows a capable person to build relationships with ideally with new people and new networks of opportunity. And, and from that, you can build a life around new things. Yeah. But, you know, a stipend, which... Uh, may allow you to subsist, but keeps you at home, isn't as good as that. Right. <laughs> right. You right. know, it isn't as good as being plugged into a world of work and opportunity and creativity and stuff that's just happening. Yeah. So, I mean, I have, I have some concerns. There are obviously a lot of uh, particulars to deal with, but yeah. one thing for me is I'm, I'm, I'm a little concerned about there being a two tier system yeah. where you have people who are employed by the public sector and people who are employed by the private sector and, uh, I mean, I think most people who've worked crappy jobs can tell you that it is exhausting enough that you have to go home and like applying for work is almost like a whole other part time job. Yeah, right. And so so if if somebody is in the public sector and they want to to bring their their talents to the to the private sector, I could see there being some barriers. If there is some sort of a, a flow uh, back and forth between the two, yeah. I think that could be beneficial for everyone. Yeah. For sure. You don't want to just trap people in, in one specific line of work. That's almost what we're trying to fight with this. Yeah, for sure. But in any case, two really in, interesting and important um, policy ideas to explore. And, you know, I'm sure there will be much, uh, much said about these things in the future. Absolutely. So in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to do something which I'm really excited about. Uh, we're going to unpack the methodology that uh, economists use to judge how, whether the minimum wage is killing jobs or not. And it's super important to understand that because what they're not doing is just counting up the number of jobs in a particular economy after the minimum wage is raised. It's far more complicated than that, and it can be gamed, and we're going to explore that. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media. That's L-A-R-J Media and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks, And peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. As always, a big thank you to our guests. And thanks to you for listening from our team at Civic Ventures. Nick Hanauer, Zach Silk. Jasmine Weaver, Justin Farrell, Stephanie Irvin, David Goldstein, Paul Constant, Stephen Paolini, and Annie Fadley. See you next week.